This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Athletic Baseball Show. To celebrate this year's Baseball Writers Hall of Fame announcement, Ken Rosenthal put together an incredible guest list for a three-hour preview and reaction show. The show aired on YouTube, but we've placed it here in audio form in three parts. Part two includes Ken Griffey Jr., Jim Palmer, Jim Cott, and Eduardo Perez. You can also go back and check out part one with legendary baseball writer Claire Smith, longtime Philly shortstop Jimmy Rollins, former Red Sox second baseman Dustin Pedroia, and Braden Halliday, the son of Hall of Famer Roy Halliday. And then part three reacts to David Ortiz's election to the Hall with interviews with Fangraphs, Jay Jaffe, and the Athletics' Jason Stark, Dan Connolly, and Brick Garoli. Without further ado, here's Ken. As we go on here, we are joined now by the newest member, along with David Cohn, of the ESPN Sunday Night Baseball team, a great friend of mine, a great analyst on television. He was a great coach as well. He's one of just great ambassadors of our game today. Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, how's it going? What's going on, Ken? How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And thanks a lot for joining us. You, of course, are the son of Hall of Famer Tony Perez, the first Hall of Famer elected from Cuba. And also, you've had your own career in baseball as a player, as a coach, and now, of course, as a television analyst. And I guess let's start off with your playing career and some of the players that you played with who are in the conversation today as Hall of Famers, one of them being Scott Rowland. We haven't talked a lot about him so far, but Scott Rowland was your teammate with the Cardinals. And Eduardo, I kind of wonder, when you watch Scott Rowland play, did you think of him as a Hall of Famer? When he was a teammate of mine, no, I did not. I'm not going to say that I did. I considered him a Hall of Fame defensive third baseman for sure offensively I thought he still needed to be able to do those high type of seasons that he had um, and he had to do it for a long period of time and guess what he was able to do that injuries cut him short a little bit but Scotty defensively as good as it gets I remember Tino Martinez um, when he was having day off and I would play against the left-handed pitcher he would tell me hey dude ground ball to third base and Scotty's Scotty gets it you better hustle to the bag and don't look down because the ball is going to be at your chest before you even before you get there. And it was hilarious because that's what Scotty would want you to do. Hustle to the bag. He'd throw it so it could go right over the bag. And when you turned around, the ball was right there. And he would be cracking up at third base. So accurate, so dependable. Um, you know, Rick Sutcliffe has always said the best ability is availability. He was available when he was with the St. Louis Cardinals as a player. Um, and I have to give him a lot of credit for the years that he was able to continue to do his defense and what he's done at, at IU ever since his retirement. Now, it's interesting, Eduardo. You played with Albert Pujols. Yeah. You played with Gary Larkin. I would say most of us would agree that those guys we knew were Hall of Famers. But now that you have transitioned into different phases of your career, front office, coaching staff, now with television, do you look at a guy like Roland differently as a Hall of Fame candidate? Do you think, okay, I get the argument? I do, because I understand the analytics a lot better. I mean, you look at the, the consistency that he had with his glove, not only with balls hit at him, but the range that he had to his left, the range that he also provided to his right. 
And just the, again, their defense has been valued so much more because of the data that we're able to put out there and we're able to read and analyze really well. And Scotty comes up at on top. Look, Tim Raines was on the Hall of Fame ballot for a long time. The analytics really helped Tim Raines get into the Hall of Fame. That's how consistent he was in those numbers. And you see the voters reacted to those numbers. They, they came through. Now, will Scotty fall short? Do I believe he's a first ballot Hall of Famer? That I don't believe is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but Scott Rowland's going to get into the Hall of Fame. And when he gets in, again, I'll be there at the Saga. I'll be at the, I'll be in Cooperstown because he was one of my favorite teammates. As a matter of fact, Ken, I'll, I'll even use this. I remember the first time, first day, Scott Rowland walked into the clubhouse in, in St. Louis and we had our hitters meeting. And all of a sudden I said, hey, watch this. And as soon as Mitchell, the late Mitchell Page, who was our hitting coach, said, okay, what do we have on this pitcher? It was the second year Albert Pujols that took charge in the meeting. And he looked at me and he goes, really? Are you kidding me? I said, man, just listen to Albert and he will get you prepared for a game. And that's exactly what we did from then on. He was an amazing guy. And an appreciation of him has grown among baseball people over the years. Not that they didn't have it as when he was a player, but there are players, and you mentioned Reigns, Burt Blylevin was another one, yeah. where over time, in both those cases, because of analytics, we kind of understood better what they contributed. Now, let's talk about your dad a little bit, because it took your dad nine years to get into the Hall of Fame. He was elected in his ninth year of eligibility. You were a player that entire time. So, Eduardo, what was it like for him and for you waiting and waiting for that big day, this day, to arrive? Anxiety. Um, I'll, I'll be straight up with you. We didn't have Twitter back then. It was <laughs> not knowing how many votes were going to be able to come in, not knowing if it was going to be, um, uh, again, if we were going to be getting the call saying, sorry, you fell short. Um, I remember those days. Uh, th those weren't happy days when those calls came in for those nine, you know, for those eight consecutive years saying, um, no, uh, not this year. And I understood the first couple years, but once we started getting into the sixth, the seventh year where you were hear a lot of rumblings, Tony could get in here. He could get in there, especially us living in the off season in Puerto Rico at that time to be able to not be able to get in. Wow. I mean, that really hurt. And, the, and this is the, this is the crazy thing. We didn't know when the call was coming. We knew it was soon, but we didn't know. And my parents were hungry. I was hungry. And they and I said, I'll go get some food. I'll be right back. And as soon as I left the condo building, got in my car, took a left out of the condo building, they called and they said, he got in, he got in. I'm like, <laughs> you mean to tell me I missed it? I missed it? And I came back to the house and they're like, where's the food? I was like, the food? Give me a hug. You're a Hall of Famer. So, Ken, this is – um. It, it, I wasn't hungry for quite some time after that, but I will say he is the pride and joy of, of our entire family because of what he did, uh, the story behind of what all of these Latino players, Afro-Latino players had to do and had to, um, their, their story is everyone is different. And I sit down and I listen to them. My dad's hero um, when he was growing up was Mini Minoso. And then all of a sudden Mini gets in this year. So there's, there's so much emotion between Tony Oliva, Mini Minoso. There are more Cuban-born Hall of Famers now 
that played in the major leagues, the joining Martin Diego and others. It's incredible. Now, the day he was inducted, that day in Cooperstown, you mentioned being up at the hotel and what that's like. That's a different kind of emotion, I would imagine. And take me back to the moment or the period where he was giving his speech. You're sitting there with your mom and your, all your relatives. What was that like? Well, I have to go back a couple days before that. And Tony La Russa, who was my manager with the St. Louis Cardinals, we were in Houston. And before even uh, we were on the plane on the way to Houston, and he goes, hey, um, you're not even close to being in the lineup on Sunday. I don't want you anywhere near this ballpark on Sunday. You better be in Cooperstown. And I said, Tony, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Um, I get emotional because I understood what this meant, not only for my dad, but also for all of his family and all the sacrifices that were made when he left home, when he left Cuba, to be able to go and, and, and make a better life, not only for himself, but for the rest of the family in Cuba, where we as, as children, we understood our responsibility for our families in Cuba that were left behind to make sure that they were taken care of. And he was able to do that. And he still is able to do that. And I also definitely am, am now a big part of that. But when that speech came in, I don't know how he held it together. My mom, every day, practice your speech, Tony, practice your speech. And my dad was already going nuts. And um, it was surreal. It was, it was surreal. I remember the part of my dad saying, I feel like a king in his coronation. Uh, it's... You know, I go to Cooperstown and I sit in front of the plaque. I think it is the coolest, coolest thing ever. Now, let's fast forward to the present, Eduardo. This year's ballot. We've well, talked about it. Maybe the most debated BBWAA ballot of all time. We've got Bonds and Clemens and Sosa and Schilling in their final years. We've got A-Rod and Manny in their first years of eligibility. And then we have a number of other worthy candidates who are certainly in the discussion from your perspective as a former player former coach front office member someone who's lived this game his whole life bonds and clements let's start there should they be in yes um look we cannot and i i can repeat what everybody says the first years they were great without it and then all of a sudden when we saw the body when we saw the body of work that they were doing after um the numbers definitely went up. We know that. I played in that era. I played right in the smack middle of the steroid era. And I personally did not do steroids at all. But I know a lot of others that did, and they weren't good at baseball. It didn't make them better. Now, these superstars, it took them to another level. Yes, it did. Um, the numbers don't lie. But at the same time, I want to be able to go into Cooperstown, go into the hall, and explain to my grandchild who Barry Bonds, who Roger Clemens were when they played the game. When Barry came up to the plate, the concession stands were empty. When Roger Clemens pitched, you made sure to go to the restroom between innings or before the game even started. And that's the day you just don't drink beer because you never know when you have to go to the restroom. <laughs> that's how good Roger Clemens, the rocket was. It was it was he evolved into that splitter, that fastball up in the zone. I remember when I had to face the rocket, I was like, man, I'm facing the rocket. I'm facing a legend here because that's what he was. And when, and when Barry Bonds came up to the plate, even before having gone to San Francisco, I knew we were looking and we were watching greatness. And um, how do we know that the, the, 
the recent Hall of Famers didn't dabble in it or not. So at the end of the day, to me, in the 10th year, I'm hoping that today at 6.15, we could hear the name Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens name to the uh, to Cooperstown. And I'm, I'm hoping that happens because I'm a baseball fan. Am I mad at what happened? I'm absolutely mad. But at the same time, I understand what the history is all about. And that history has to be told. What about Schilling? He's part of that history too. Different kind of character entirely. I would I vote. I voted. I made my mock uh, uh, and I voted for Kurt Schilling. Um, look, mine goes a little bit more personal. I'm keeping the politics away from this. I'm going to remember, I worked with Kurt Schilling. I was in the booth with Kurt Schilling. I understood how important Kurt, uh, how much Kurt Schilling loved the game and how smart he was about the game. And if there's a big game pitcher at a big moment, I, I want Kurt Schilling up there. I want him on the mound. He was proven. And not only that, Ken, Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico. And I get a call from a random number and it was a satellite phone a phone and it was Kurt Schilling calling me from Puerto Rico and he as he had gone with supplies to help people and he said what does your family need I didn't call him he called me and he helped and it wasn't that he had the media behind him or anything he did it because that's who Kurt Schilling is again politics aside Kurt Schilling to me is a hall of famer in my book well, it's interesting, Eduardo. I saw that side of Schilling as well. I covered him early in his career, all the way through. I wrote the cover story for the Sporting News in 2001 and when he was our Sportsman of the Year. Hard to imagine, right, that this guy that we know now from all of his offensive comments and actions on social media was that guy back then. But yeah. he did have that side to him. And one of the things that he has complained about over the years is that that side no one talks about anymore. Well, he's kind of obscured it with some of the others. That's true, Ken. Um, but at the same time, I think we always cannot hear and want and see eye to eye with what people think. It's um, That's the way the world goes. And I think that's what creates conversation to some. Uh, but Kurt Schilling, to me, again, uh, I, I look, I listened to Jimmy Rollins talk about his, his rookie season, who took care of him. I listened to Dustin Pedroy also here on your show say the same thing on his rookie season. That's who Kurt Schilling was on the field. That's who he was. And um, and again, that's still who he is. The only thing, he's not wearing a uniform. He's not in the clubhouse. He's a little older, a little heavier. Uh, but doesn't it happen to all of us? <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. Now, Eduardo, before we let you go, one other guy I want to ask you about. You didn't play with him, but you certainly know of him. We all do. David Ortiz, your memories. Um, neighbor of mine here in Miami. The life, the life of, of not only a party, the life of a gathering, the big moment person on and off the field. David Ortiz, uh, you look at just what he represents with Boston Strong, what he represents to his Dominican community, what he represents to the Latino community. It is so hard to be a designated hitter. We sometimes Put, uh, put a setback on, on a player or use it as a handicap saying, well, he was a designated hitter. He didn't do enough uh, uh, on the defensive side. Yeah, his war is going to be a little bit lower because the defense was just not there. But I'll tell you firsthand, being a designated hitter is probably the hardest psychological position in the entire game of baseball. You have to sit 
after a strikeout and wait and hope that you get another at-bat, um, that you get another opportunity. You have to think about it. David was able to put those things aside, produce, and not only produce, help his teammates produce and stay focused on the game. And because of that, the numbers don't lie. The postseason numbers don't lie. And David Ortiz, like him or not, I have him in the Hall of Fame as well. Eduardo, great talking to you always. And we look forward so much to hearing you on Sunday Night Baseball. I offer you these public congratulations. I've done it privately. I'm so happy hey. for you. And listen, man, thanks so much for joining us. One today. more thing is I know we got a lot of guests. Go. These right here were the Hall of these right here are all Hall of Famers, the Latino Hall of Famers. Add Alomar, add Rodriguez to this. Hopefully, Vladdy as well. And hopefully David will be added to, to this one as well. So Hopefully we'll be getting congratulations from more of them. But thanks, Ken, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, Eduardo. That's a beautiful portrait right there. Thank you so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we move on now to another player. Well, this guy actually was and is a Hall of Famer, elected on his first try in 1990 with 92.6% of the vote. I know him very well from our days together in Baltimore. I didn't actually cover him as a player, but, of course, I knew him as a broadcaster. I know him as a broadcaster. Jim Palmer, how are you today, Jim? Quite well. You? I'm doing well, thanks. Now, I was thinking about this today. You've been a Hall of Famer for more than 30 years now. That's longer than you were actually a player. And I wonder what has this meant to you as the years have passed, simply being known as Jim Palmer Hall of Famer? Well, you know, it started for me, um, Joe Morgan and I got in in 1990. And um, we were the only two guys that ever got in where we actually got in the next day after uh, supposedly the induction was gonna happen. We got rained out on Sunday. Uh, I actually went to the, uh, the to the dinner with all the other Hall of Famers Sunday night. Normally, they give out the Hall of Fame rings. Uh, and what was so interesting is to me, I think I got an idea that I was in a pretty select company when Ted Williams grabbed the microphone and Stan Musial had had some health issues. He said, you know, it's so great to see Stan back. And then they passed the microphone around. Yogi Berra talked. I mean, DiMaggio's there and Mantle's there. I mean, all the, you know, I mean, the, the pitcher-wise, uh, you know, you – you had Koufax there, you had, uh, you know, early win. I mean, had all the guys that kind of growing up, I had their baseball cards or they beat my Yankees, so I didn't like them or, or whatever the case was. So I think before Joe and I actually had the induction in a small gym on Monday morning in Cooperstown, we got an idea of what it was like to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, J Jack Lang was the baseball writers, uh, you know, president of the Baseball Writers Association. And he said, listen, I think it was the January 11th, 1990. He said, we're going to let you know one way or the other. I can't tell you that, you know, that, that you're going to get in, but you did win more games in the 80s, 70s than anybody else. You did win three Cy Young Awards. You did, uh, you know, you know, three guys, you know, the World Series youngest guy to pitch a shutout. He gave, went through all my, my stats and he said, so where are you going to be between seven and eight o'clock? So I had a friend 
first Pacino owned, owned the Orchard Inn in, 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 in Baltimore. He said, Let, why don't we have a party? And I said, well, what if I don't get in? He said, well, we'll do it again next year. I said, well, this could get expensive. <laughs> well, anyway, it's, so they said they're going to call between seven and eight. And somebody had told the Hall of Fame I was at Obrecki's, which is a crab house. So they're calling around. They're closed in the winter. So it took them till quarter to nine till I got the phone call. And my uh, my stepson said, Jim, it's not looking very good because they were going to call between seven and eight. Here it is at eight forty five. So I got the call from Jack Lang and he said, you know, the good news, actually, the bad news is 33 writers didn't vote for you. The good news, 411 did. Welcome to the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, and then to go in, uh, you know, of course, we went up to New York the next day. I think we were on Good Morning America. And Joe and I, I mean, I went with one of the great impact players. Of, of really of that era, uh, you know, Joe won a couple MVPs. He could steal bases, you know, for a guy that was what five eight. He was a five tool player. He could hit home runs. I think the only I only threw two leadoff home runs in my career. One to Tommy Agee in the '69 World Series, and the other one in the All Star Game in 1977 to Joe Morgan. Because I said, you know, three and two, Yankee Stadium. He hits a pop fly down the right field line. But I said. If I walk him, he's going to steal second. And if he feels good, he's going to steal third. So I better throw him a strike and I'm down one to nothing. So it was great not only to get into the Hall of Fame, but to go in with a player that meant that much of baseball. And, uh, you know, he kind of made, they had a lot of great players on the big red machine, but he certainly, you know, we played him in 70 in the World Series, but they were an entirely different team when they won the back, back World Series in 75 and 76. Jim, you touched on this the camaraderie that the Hall of Fame has experienced with each other each year when they go back. And that is something that I've only witnessed kind of from afar, and I haven't been to many induction ceremonies. It's always around the trade deadline. But it just seems to me that those moments that you guys share, because you have a shared history with so many of these players, it's so special. And I wonder, as you go back each year, does that increase your appreciation of it, or is it just something you just look forward to? How would you describe it? Well, I, I mean, I think, you you know, you I'd much rather uh, actually have a glass of wine with George Brett uh, having a beer than trying to get him out in Kansas City with runners in second and third in a one run ball game. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Rod Carew, I mean, I still remember the curveball I threw him in 1964 and in instructionally. So you get to see guys that, you know, my job as a pitcher was to get them out. But you idolize these guys. You really knew how good they were. And then, of course, my first roommate with the Orioles, uh, you know, was Robin Roberts. Uh, he was 38 when I joined the Orioles in 1965. Uh, I was 19. Uh, you know, he pitched 600 and what, 605 starts, 300 or 303 complete games. So I kind of learned from him. I realized, you know, I would watch Robin pitch a 12 hit shutout. So, you know, you learn a lot from these guys, but I have so much respect for him. And, you know, I think the interesting thing, you know, it's a select group of people, but I always thought, you know, it didn't matter who I faced. I always thought that they were Hall of Famers, and I think that makes you actually pitch a little bit better. Jim, your Hall of Fame case was really clear. You won 268 games, 2.84 career ERA. You appeared in six World Series, won three. You were the youngest to pitch a complete game shutout in a World Series while you were still 20 in 1966. The only pitcher to win a World Series game in three different decades. Now, Obviously, today, the game is much different. You know that. You see it on a nightly basis. How do you judge whether a pitcher from this position, starting pitcher, is a Hall of Famer? Well, you were kind of talking about it. I mean, uh, you know, I thought Eduardo talked about it. You know, analytics give you a little bit more of an insight. You know, the game has changed. I mean, I was looking at – you talked about Bert Blylevin. It took Bert a long time to get in. 
even though he had a marvelous career. I think he won 287 games, but I was writing some numbers down and, you know, he had 60 shutouts, um, 242 complete games. Now, you know, I kind of do a little homework. I was thinking of, okay, so which guys maybe the modern day starting pitchers uh, are going to, you know, Verlander comes on the list. Greinke comes on the list. Scherzer comes on the list. Kershaw with, you know, three, as Max does, three, three uh, Cy Youngs. But if you look at Zach Greinke, as good as he is, he's got three shutouts in his career. He's got like 17 complete games. So the game has changed. I would have loved to have pitched at an era where I had Mariano Rivera. I mean, we did have Stu Miller and Tippy Martinez, Eddie Watt, people like that. I would have been happy not to pitch the eighth or ninth innings, but that's not the, the way the game changed. So I think it, you look at numbers, uh, you know, as well as anybody, because you still cover the game for MLB um, or well, you used to cover the, the game for MLB. Now you do it for five. Yeah. The three outcomes. If you're, you know, I mean, you know, if you're a hitter, it's going to be strikeouts, walks or, or home runs. I think the outcome that they really treasure um, is the strikeout. But you go back and you look, you know, if you look at, you know, okay, so Pedro struck people out, Smoltz struck people out, Randy Johnson struck people out. If you win 300 games, obviously you're getting to the Hall of Fame. Mike Messina could strike anybody out when he needed to. I think my strikeouts with a runner in third and less than two outs went up 20 some percent because I needed a strikeout. Otherwise, hey, fly ball to Paul Blair in center field with eight gold gloves plays pretty well. So I think they look at, and you're also playing in an era where guys don't seem to mind striking out. So I think, you know, you, you know, you look at the FIPS, you look at the, I mean, every, I, I once read an article, I was lucky because my batting average on balls in play was 249 for my career, where the league average is around 300, but I had good defense, so I must've been lucky. How about Greg Maddox? Over 5,000 innings. He wasn't a strikeout guy, but did you hit the ball hard off him? You know, I mean, he won, what, uh, 16 or 17 gold gloves. He fielded the position, he played in the National League. You know, he could bunt. He could get the runner over. He did all these little things that make you a little bit different. So I guess they all come into um, they come into play. But I can't imagine in my ear, and I'm not going to, you know, dump on Blake Snell. But day, 2018, he goes 21 and 5 or 21 and 4. He doesn't even average six innings per start. Now, that part of that's Tampa Bay. But and also the fact that he throws 17 to 19 pitches an inning, you couldn't do that in our era. You, you know, you'd probably been in the bullpen. So the game has evolved. You know, it's a very simple game. They look at how do you do first time through the order, second time through the order. Most guys, the third, fourth, not the great pitchers, but most guys now that number goes up dramatically. They go to the bullpen. So I think you know it's a tough job as a voter. But it, I would think you know whether you're you know you're looking at um, you know whether it's Billy Wagner. I think you're probably for the next a while, you're going to see more relievers, as we've seen. I mean, you go back and look, you know, Eck got in into, what, 2004, one of the great pitchers. Then you got, uh, you know, Mariano, Lee Smith get in. So there's been a trend more that relievers are going to get in because, as we know, bullpen has become a really important part of whether you're going to win ball games or especially in the postseason. Now, how do you view that trend? Because obviously in the old days, relief pitchers were guys who weren't good enough to be starters. You were a great starting pitcher. Mariano, you mentioned one of the all-time great relievers. Billy Wagner, 900 innings or so in his career. Is that enough? Well, we're going to see. You know, I mean, he was a dominant starter. Strikeouts were, what, 13 for, for nine innings because he could do that. Uh, you know, I, I always kind of – I mean, there's the numbers. And, you know, they say, well, I guess, uh, you know, his postseason numbers were not that great. But, again, you got them to the postseason. Um, I think back – at 
some of the guys that I, Stu Miller was, you know, our closer. I would load the bases up with any of the, the, the great relievers. I would get the bases loaded with nobody out to Stu Miller, and he just couldn't hit his changeup. He started as a starting pitcher. Lee Smith was a starting pitcher. Jeff Reardon was a starting pitcher. Goose Gossage was a starting pitcher. Raleigh Fingers were a starting So now I think, guys, you know, he used to be okay. If you don't have three pitches, you're going to the bullpen. I don't think that's changed. But again, most of the guys that come out of the bullpen, with some exceptions, are max effort guys. And uh, in my day, Maddox wasn't a, a max effort guy. Schilling, you know, never walked anybody, you know, but he could throw the ball right on the corner. It'll be very interesting to see if Kirk gets in because, as Eduardo said, do you want anybody uh, just going to get into the Hall of Fame if you needed a big game with 11 and 2 with a minuscule ERA pitching the most important game of the season? I don't think so. All right. What about Clemens? If you had a vote, Jim, would you vote for Clemens? I think so. You know, are we going to say that nobody in the Hall of Fame did steroids? No. No. Okay. So there you go. Now, now, and, and Eduardo touched on it. I think we all, you know, that study the game, love the game, revere the game. Roger was going to get in anyway. Barry Bonds was going to get in anyway. Um, I don't, you know, A-Rod, one of the marvelous players, kind of flaunted the rules. Uh, but a lot of those guys pitched before they actually did the testing. So, uh, you know, not not say that Bonds didn't do Balco or whatever. Barry didn't need to do steroids. We all know why he did it. He had the great home run chase in 1998 between Sosa and McGuire. Uh, I think he felt a little bit jealous of the of all the, uh, you know, all the idolation they got for hitting the home runs. I mean, it was like home run derby the last two weeks of the season, as you know. You know, and I think, you know, Barry – didn't need to do it. I mean, he was a five-tool player. He could beat you any way. He was kind of a more powerful Roberto Clemente, who beat us in the 71 World Series with 13 hits, won the MVP. So, um, yeah, I, I I think I vote for Roger. And, you know, you got to also understand, it's not my Hall of Fame. You know, I think most people, I have a lot of friends, they text me, so did you vote for Clemens? Did you vote for Bonds? We don't get a vote. You know, unless you're on one of the, you know, you know now it used to be the Veterans Committee, now it's a you know, it's the Jim Cott committee, which, you know, I am so happy that he and Tony Oliva got in, you know, Buck O'Neill, some of the guy, I mean, Buck O'Neill, if, if you ever went to Kansas City and you were playing flip, where did you go? You went over the stands to, to sit, you know, to lean against the screen and talk to Buck O'Neill because it was, you know, he told me he used to, when he was a kid, when Babe Ruth and some of the great Negro players would barnstorm, he said, you could always tell who was up because you'd be outside the stadium trying to catch a ball. And he said, I always knew when Babe was hitting because the sound of the ball off his bat. I mean, those stories are priceless. Well, it is a great class coming in of Veterans Committee candidates. And oh, yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time. And I think people who are watching can understand why Orioles fans, even though the team of late might not be that good, they've got a great broadcast team and they're very fortunate to listen to you. Well, there's going to be less home runs this year. How about, how about, the, new, how about the new configuration in left field? Well, what do you think of that? Well, I, you know, I can't wait to see it. It's, it's you know, I, it's funny when Mike Messina, when they wanted Mike, all they had to do is give him a signing bonus and extend his contract. But they, they actually moved home plate back, what, about eight feet? And he ended up going to the, to the Yankees and, you know, having a great finish of his career, winning a couple, what, two more games than me and getting into the Hall of Fame. Um, but they moved it back eight feet. This was going to be somewhere around 25 to 30 feet. So the question is, the Orioles got outscored by 297 runs last year. So maybe that'll stop, but what's that going to do to their offense? It's a good question. It's a very good question. So, you know, they, they, they have good speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hayes can play left. Mullins is a very good center fielder. Santander, when he's healthy, can play right. 
but you're going to need a really good left fielder. So it'll be very interesting, but you will, you won't see any of those 368 routine fly balls for three run or grand slam home runs. And I applaud that. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, thank you so much. Appreciate hey, so, uh, hey, great to see you. Thanks, Can't Jim. wait for the, uh, the vote. Take care. <laughs> see you later. Thank you, Jim. All right. Now our next guest, Jim Palmer, just mentioned him. He is one of my all-time favorite people, not just a great pitcher. He is someone I've worked with on MLB Network and enjoyed being his dugout reporter as he was an analyst. He is among the most insightful broadcasters in the sports history, not to mention someone who signed with the Washington Senators on June 17, 1957, nearly 65 years ago, and just last month was finally, at the age of 83, finally elected to the Hall of Fame by one of the Veterans Committees, Jim Cott. Welcome. How are you, Jim? Ken, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I can just listen to Jim Palmer all day. I mean, he's got such a great memory and insight into the game. Very good stuff. Oh, I agree. He's amazing. And he has an incredible recall of his own career, too. Different moments, statistics. I wonder, do you recall your career as vividly as that? I can't imagine many guys do. You, you know what's unique about Jim uh, because we're good friends, we talk often, and he was so supportive of me in the past uh, getting into the Hall of Fame, and I've always appreciated that. But he not only remembers his games, he remembers my games. And I wasn't on his team. Like one day I was facing the Orioles when I was with the White Sox, and he said to me one day, you remember that home run that Roberts hit off you? And uh, no, it was a uh, big low ball hitter, Jim. I can't think of his last name down, but uh, uh, he remembered the home run that I gave up uh, to one of the Oreo right hand hitters. And I had to scratch my head and said, Oh, yeah, now I remember that one. <laughs> Amazing. Jim. But yeah, so I think we do have, we do have better recall. Uh, about games that happened 50 years ago than I, and this is a part of the aging process that I do with what happened yesterday. All right. That is an odd thing. We all experience that to some degree. Now, Jim, yeah. a month ago you get in and it's been a long wait. There's no doubt about that. You came close twice on veterans committee votes. And I'm curious the night you got the call or the day you got the call, finally, where were you when it happened? What were your emotions like in that moment? Well, Margie and I, my wife Margie and I were sitting in our home in Stewart, Florida, and I had been prepped as I had been before that uh, we don't call with bad news. But if you could be around the phone between 515 and 545, uh, that's when we have tabulated the votes and we make the call. So about 15 minutes went by. I had my cell phone sitting, you know, face up. And the phone chimed, and I noticed it was a 917 area code. So I thought, well, that is a Long Island or a New York City cell phone. But I said, I'm going to answer it. And the voice on the other end was a female voice. It said, is this Jim? Yes. And the words came out, this is Jane Clark. And since December 5, that's four words that resonate through my brain every day. I mean, as Teddy Simmons said, it just keeps getting better. And uh, I had such a flood of emotions. You know, I thought about uh, my dad who drove to the Hall of Fame in 1947 
to see the induction of his favorite player, Lefty Grove, and what the Hall of Fame meant to him and what it meant to me. You know, we used to play before video games and actually before TV. Uh, we would sit in the living room. My dad gets sporting news on a Monday. It took us all week to read it. And I was asked this question so often that before the words got out, I knew the answer. It was uh, Ty Cobb, uh, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, and Hannes Wagner. I knew that when I was eight years old, the five inductees, first five into the Hall of Fame. So you can imagine when I got the call, what was going through my mind. And Jim, you were on the writer's ballot for 15 years, back when a player could be on the writer's ballot for 15 years. Now it is 10. You never received more than 29.6% of the vote during that entire period. What were your emotions like during that time? Because that had to be at some level a frustrating experience. Well, I wouldn't say it was frustrating, Ken. I think the first couple of years I was curious because I looked at my win total. Uh, you know, I thought I could have still started, but it was a great thing that Woody Herzog did. He used me as a lefty out of the bullpen. And last couple of years, we won the World Series. So I came 17 games short, but... I looked at Robin Roberts and Fergie Jenkins, and they had about the same win total, but they were so much more dominant. So I realized in a hurry that that's what the writers look at. I mean, how many all-star games were you in? How many times did you win 20 games? And these guys like posted double digits, and I wasn't in that class. So I pretty much knew from the writers after that first couple of years that uh, – I'd always told, told Tommy John, and I hope Tommy gets in the next time. I said, if you get in and I don't, I'd be disappointed if I get in and you don't, because we had kind of similar careers. We we were marathon runners, not sprinters, and we did it over a period of time. I just heard Jim talk about the strikeout. You got Jim Palmer, and you had Gibby and Koufax and Marichelle and Randy Johnson, and these guys got hitters out with their stuff. Johnny Sane and Eddie Lopat, my two favorite coaches in the 60s, convinced me that, no, you have to give hitters a chance to get themselves out. And how do you do that? Movement, location, change of speeds, motion. So that was the type of pitcher I was. And, and the Hall of Fame often doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't really reward those types of pitchers. They're more into the dominant all-star strikeout, rightly so. Jim, I'm glad you mentioned Tommy John because I was a voter for part of the time that you were still on the ballot, and I did not vote for you. I've told you this, I believe. did not vote for you, Tommy John, or initially Burt Blylevin because I saw all of you in the same category. Each was between 280 and 290 wins, comparably ERAs. You had the 16 gold gloves. Tommy John, of course, pretty famous surgery was named after him. Blylevin, the signal curveball. And then Blylevin eventually got in. And I wonder at that point, did you think, okay, maybe with one of the veterans committees, I'm going to have a better chance because perceptions are changing. And I'm glad the perceptions did change. I always felt horribly that I didn't vote for any of you guys. I believe all three of you now should be in. Well, that's kind of you to say that. Yeah, I, I, I realized that early on. And I think what the veterans committee, what I liked about this year's committee, what I liked, I say, because I thought my chances were the best they'd ever been is that I had guys that I played against, I played with, I had executives and media people that actually saw me. 
and this is no disrespect to the, the late Dayton Moore, uh, no, not, uh, uh, David Glass, who owned the Royals. Yes. He was on the committee one year. He never got into baseball until 1998. My career was over in 1983. So I saw names like that, and I thought, well, these guys don't know anything about me, so I don't have a chance. But, yeah, the Veterans Committee, and actually it's it's kind of rewarding. As Jim had said, Jim Palmer, it's the Writers Hall of Fame. It's you guys' Hall of Fame. And I understand completely why you'd look at it the way you did. But I think now with the Veterans Committee, uh, guys look a little deeper into maybe rewarding uh, durability, reliability, uh, length of service, things like that. And it's almost like uh, a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. We're talking with Jim Cotton. And I think back to Tommy, Kenny, back to, back to yeah. Tommy, I always thought, I heard this because being in the game as long as I have, I hear little things from the Veterans Committee leak out that what went on in the committee because writer friends of mine, others in one day I heard that uh, a baseball executive said regarding Tommy John, we don't put people in the Hall of Fame just because they have surgery. Well, yeah, well you did a little bit Tommy more. Tommy John had a better yeah. yeah, Tommy John had a better career after his surgery than before. And he it's a hall of quote fame. Who's more famous when you mention the name Tommy John? I tell TJ, I said, TJ, a lot of people think you're a doctor. Yeah, you know, nobody right. mentions Frank Joe. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll be happy uh, when he's up that he gets in. One of the things that I thought was so cool about your election is that it came on the same Veterans Committee ballot as Tony Oliva, your longtime teammate. And I wonder how much it meant to you simply to go in with him. Oh. I mean, we haven't had a chance to talk much personally because we've been so busy, but gosh, knowing Tony, I've always been a supporter of him. And I go back 60 years when he first came out of spring training, nobody knew who he was. He got released. They decided and they saw him working out with the Charlotte team to send him to Withville. He hits 414. I was in the instructional league when they would hit fly balls. Del Wilbur would hit fly balls with a fungo to Tony. He wouldn't even get a glove on the ball. And in three years' time, he became a gold glove outfielder. And so that was so – it is so special. It's going to be special. The one the one player that I wish was right there with us is my friend, the late Dick Allen. And, Ken, one of the most, I guess, heartwarming calls I got was on Monday morning after December 5, after I got the good news, I got a call from Willa Allen, Dick's widow. She was so happy. She said, oh, Dick would be so happy. He loved you. He loved playing behind you. I said, Willa, he didn't love me anymore, and I loved him. I loved playing with Dick. We became great friends. I said, think about this. I got 12 votes. If they could have voted for five this year, Dick would have been in too. But they can only vote for four. So I said, what if one voter is torn between Dick and myself? And he said, well, I'm going to vote for Dick this year. He'd be in, I'd be out. That's how fine the line is between getting that necessary 75% votes. And I, it's got to be five year wait. I'm sad about that. But Willa and his, uh, Dick's brother, Hank, was a good friend. They have a great attitude about it. And uh, I'll, uh, if I'm still alive, I'll certainly go to Dick Allen's induction because he's another guy along with Tony that would have been, uh, would have been so, uh, uh, such a joy to go in with. 
Well, Dick should be, and I think a lot of us agree on that. Now, Jim, this summer, I know you have a busy calendar of events, a lot of things with the Twins, and of course, leading up to the ceremony, I believe it's on July 24th. What are you looking forward to the most? Boy, it's a combination of things. It's, uh, you know, the Twins are going to retire my number. Uh, then they're going to bring us back with the plaques, and we're going to have a return home today. But I I think... Uh, you know, there's there's a, a few sad, there's a little sadness. It's a time of joy and celebration. But, uh, you know, my daughter would have been, you know, she she was taken from us last year uh, with left three kids and they're going to be there. So that's going to be the thing, I think, with my family members there and and even my college roommate who, who called me. I haven't seen him much of him. He's going to be there. I think all the people friends that I don't see on a regular basis all of a sudden are going to be congregated in one place. Now, with all the activities, I may not have time uh, to spend a lot of time with them, but I think that's the thing I'm I'm looking forward to. And I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, I've been to, I think, 10 inductions, starting with uh, uh, Harmon Killebrews in 1984, just to see some of the Hall of Famers that are there that uh, that I've gotten to see in the past, like uh, Juan Marichal and uh, Orlando and, and some of the other guys. I mean, I'm going to miss the days sitting with Robin Roberts on this side and, and uh, Warren Spahn on the other and talking pitching. But that's really what uh, some of the things I look forward to. And I, I want to just throw this in because I heard your discussion about relievers. And I'm a little biased here because I was a twin, is that people need to look at the career of Joe Nathan. And I don't even know if Joe will get 5% of the votes. But when you look at, and I'm privy to that because I see what he did for the Twins. When you look at how dominant he was for a seven, eight year period of time, and I'm a big Billy Wagner fan too, but Joe's name does not come up enough and he belongs in the discussion. All right, Jim, very good. Well, I will leave you with this. Something that Roland Heeman, the late Roland Heeman, great general manager of a number of teams, Orioles, White Sox, he worked for the Diamondbacks as well. He would say this all the time, and he was someone who had a great joie de vivre, love life, and he would say, enjoy the moment. And Jim, I hope you enjoy the moment as much as you possibly can. Thanks, Ken. I will, and uh, always good to visit with you. Thanks so much, Jim. Jim Cott, Hall of Famer. Now, our next guest, final guest before we hit the announcement period between 6 and 6.15 is a guy who got elected with uh, 99.3% of the vote in 2016, one of the great players of our generation and any generation, Ken Griffey Jr. Ken, how are you today? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well, thanks. Now, you had a really busy 2021 for a guy who's not playing anymore in the middle of this pandemic. (laughs) You get named senior advisor to the commissioner in January. You get named to the Hall of Fame board of directors in July. And then, of course, in October, you become a part owner of the Mariners. So first, Ken, I want to ask you, with all that's going on in your life with your family, I know you're so busy with your kids, why this move to the executive level on so many fronts? Uh, Just trying not to be a kid. Uh, You know, so many years of people calling you the kid and things like that, uh, you know, it's time that, uh, you know, I start making decisions and and help grow the game of baseball. You know, other than me playing, I think, you know, the more important thing is getting out there and and doing work for, uh, 
baseball and, and showing kids that, hey, it's a great sport. Let's go have some fun with it. Can we be talking about this all day? No matter what happens tonight, there are already six individuals who have been elected to the Hall of Fame, including the great Buck O'Neill, who had this amazing baseball life, and it's so great to see him in the Hall. Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, we mentioned, Manny Minoso. All that said, how important is it for the Hall to have a player elected by the BBWAA tonight? It's important. I mean, the fans come out there and, and show that uh, uh, their support um, each and every year coming to Cooperstown. Uh, you know, I think it's it, it's greatly important for them to have at least one um, because these are the guys that they've seen play throughout the years. Uh, you know, going to, you know, the Negro League Museum with Buck was like one of the highlights of, of my young career. Um, he actually picked me up on a, a, a day game and drove me over there. Uh, well, excuse me, a night game, picked me up, getaway day, drove me there, took two and a half hours to go through the museum. And I will never forget that as long as I live. I had on a green suit because it was getaway day. And, uh, you know, he spent the time uh, with every player that he came, you know, around. And, you know, I don't know Jim that well, but, you know, just listening to some of the stories that he was just telling and, and things like that, you know, it, it, these are baseball guys. And, and, you know, it's very important that, you know, they get recognized for what they did and what they're doing. Now, Ken, sitting on the board of directors as you do with the Hall of Fame, what does that entail? What does a guy like you do as part of that board? Uh, well, the first meeting I went to, I just listened because <laughs> it was a lot of information. And, you know, then I talked to Ms. Clark and we went through some things. And uh, so the second one is going to be a little bit easier. Uh, it's actually here later on like, uh, this month. So, uh, well, next month, excuse me. So I'll be able to input some ideas. But for the most part, it's just listening and, and getting caught up to speed of, of what they've been talking about for you know, the last two, three years. Can I mention when you were elected in 2016, you received 99.3% of the vote. That was the highest percentage ever at that time. It has been exceeded only by Mariano, who was unanimous in 19. And it seemed, okay, Ken Griffey Jr., first bout, everybody kind of knew you were going to be elected, but you're the guy who is in the middle of this. What was that day like for you waiting for the call? Um hectic because uh, you have an idea that you're going to get the call but until that phone rings you, you don't know uh, for me you know just the the idea of like trying to do normal things around the house and you know my friends playing jokes on me like five minutes before my the actual phone call they actually called me and I just looked at the phone then I looked at the person who called me like okay you got me but for the most part, it's just, you know, try to stay calm. And, it, and it's hard. Uh, you know, once the phone call was done, we did the, uh, the interview with Pedro. Um, I mean, what's really crazy is I, ha I still have his notes. So that was the one thing that, you know, I cherish, you know, after the, the actual call is to have Pedro's notes. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, so I'm sitting there and we go, all right, we're going to eat. And then we get done eating, come back. And then, you know, we got to get up in the, you know, I get home at like 12, you know, I got to clean up a little bit. And it's already like, it's like two o'clock in the morning now. 
and your plane's at six. So you like two hours of sleep and then get on a plane and head to New York. So it's a, a hectic couple days, but you know, I could deal with it. <laughs> Good. Now, Ken, since being elected, you've had a few times now where you've been able to go back to Cooperstown, of course, not last year with the pandemic, but recently. And that experience, we talked about this with Jim Palmer and some of the others as well. It's unlike anything else as a player. It's one thing when you're in your clubhouse with your teammates and you have great players in there. You have not so great players. When you're up in Cooperstown at the hotel sitting around with those guys, they're all great players. They're all legends. And yeah. how much enjoyment, I would ask, have you gotten out of that experience, just being surrounded by those guys? Uh, it's been uh... – you know, you just look at some of the guys and the numbers that they put up. Uh, you know, you know, my favorite it, it was is Hank. You know, walking in and everybody goes, "That's the man." They just look at it like it's still, you know, l- we're that little kid that, and you see this idol that walks in, and uh, you know, he'd always make sure that I gave him a hug and 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 he talked to me and you know, so this year. It was going to be a little different, uh, you know, with him not being there. But I still – I may have to just give him an air hug and, and say thank you because he's he's done a lot for, you know, my family and baseball. So it's going to be weird not seeing him there. But, you know, we still remember him. He's still the, the, the top of the food chain. Absolutely. Now, Ken, you hit 630 homers, but you weren't just remembered for that. Ten-time Gold Glove winner – one of the most exciting center fielders any of us has ever seen. And yet one of your teammates, Edgar Martinez from the Mariners, was elected primarily as a DH. And tonight, David Ortiz stands what seemed to be a pretty good chance of getting elected as even more of a DH than Edgar was. Now, I wonder how you view the designated hitter role in terms of the Hall of Fame. Should the best DHs be in there or should there be some kind of bar that is higher for them? No, they got a hit. <laughs> you know they've got a they got a job to do. Nobody, you know, uh, it's like everybody in the uh, NBA. They can all shoot, but you get a certain role when you get to that high level. You know, through high school, you're the best shooter. Through college, you're probably one of the best shooters. You get to pros, you may not be one of the best shooters, but you're still out there. And the same thing, you know, you may not be the best defensive player. You know, you may not have the strongest arm, but you can flat hit. And in the American League, they have a spot. Um, I remember, you know, early, you know, well, growing up, you know, the DH was for an older guy that could still hit, didn't play every day. Now you don't have that. You got guys that can flat out hit who are in their 20s, but, you know, you got a better defensive player. And it gives a, you know, a slight advantage to, you know, the, the offense. So do I mind? Absolutely not. I mean, these guys have to go out there and do a job. And, and you don't see the DH in the eighth and ninth slot. You see them in three, four, and five. So they are doing damage. Now, the issue of PEDs. You told Shannon Sharp on a podcast in 2020 that you never used performance-enhancing drugs because you didn't want anyone to doubt your authenticity as a player. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue of PEDs is one that we debate constantly with regard to the Hall of Fame. First question, how much attention do you pay to that debate? None. (laughs) I don't. Uh, You know, it's just one of those things that you just, you know, it didn't involve me, so why am I going to pay attention to it? As long as it doesn't involve me, I can't really 
you know, nobody knows who did what or, or anything. They're just everybody speculating on this thing. So, and I don't believe in speculation. You know, if if somebody's seen it and you know can verify, it, then then I can go with it. You know, uh, but until then, I just sit there and go. You know, it didn't involve me, so keep it moving. Okay, with some guys, it wasn't speculation. Alex, for instance, Rodriguez, we know he admitted to using early in the 2000s. Then, of course, he was suspended for a year. So as a member of the Hall's board of directors, do you have an opinion on whether players like him or players like Barry Bonds, who were never found to have tested positive? Yeah, but we, don't get the, we don't get the vote until later. Correct. You know, the, the, you know we have the, the, the voting after 10 years. So it doesn't matter what we say. It's all what you guys say for the first 10 years. And then, you know, it will go from there until they get to that point. You know, we have to, you know, deal with the, what the writers say. And then, you know, when they come to the veterans committee, then we will have to discuss it. But for the right now, that discussion hadn't even came up, you know, in, in the meeting that we had, it was more, you know, Hey, you know, how can we get the, the people into Cooperstown? And uh, if there's a strike. All right. Fair, fair question. Hopefully there will not be. So no. as we go forward here, what do you remember most about David Ortiz and competing against him? What do I remember the most? Well, that he was a Mariner first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that my dad didn't want the Mariners to trade him. Okay. Uh, he said he's going to be a hell of a hitter and you just can't, you know, you don't grow those guys on trees. And that was, and I remember, you know, me being 25, 26 when my dad said it. And then he goes to Minnesota and all of a sudden he goes to Boston and exploded. Um, you know, he's a guy that loves baseball, will do anything for you. You know, um, you know, I called him a couple months ago and asked him a question. You know, we're take, thinking about taking the family to Dominican. And he says, hey, stay at my house. I mean, that's just the way he is. He, you know, he's he's very open and honest. And, you know, he's one of those guys that, you know, baseball needs him and we need him. I mean, you know, we love him. Gotcha. Now, Ken, the Mariners, great year last year. Now you're a part owner. Do you look at the game differently in that role than you did as a player? I mean, obviously you do. I guess my better question would be, how differently do you look at it? What will you be looking at now in your role as someone with a stake in the team? Well, I've only had two meetings. <laughs> in the first two of I've been just sitting there listening. Uh you know, my thing is uh, try to continue to build. You know, I think that, you know, 20 years of not being in the playoffs is, is a long time. And it's just, you know, the, the people of Seattle and the state of Washington, uh, you know, need something to cheer about during the summer. Not, you know, not during the winter, you know, but, you know, when people can come out and uh, to an open air stadium and, and watch a competitive team, that's what you need. And we, if we can continue to build, I think we're going to be all right. All right. Last Do I look at things differently? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In what way? Now, do you, do you see a player do something and say, oh, what is he doing? Because as a player, you no, might. No, I never, I never do that. Okay. Uh, you know, just 
um, mainly just, you know, I look at approaches, how people approach and at bat, but I've always been that way. Um, trying to set up hitters, I mean, pitchers and things like that. So I look at more hitters trying to set up pitchers than I look at, you know, outfield and infield. Because sometimes, you know, you'll glance at something and, you know, the second baseman or shortstop will take off running. You're like, oh, oh, where do I throw the ball to now? So those things are going to happen. Just, you know, approach fundamentally sound at the plate, uh, doing the small things, getting the guys over, getting them in, you know, making it easy for the guy behind you. Those things are important. And those are things that are lost now is, you know, everybody wants to hit the three run homer. You know, you know, everybody says baseball is boring. Well, baseball is boring because there's no action because guys are not putting the ball in play. You put the ball in play. You don't have time to sit there and eat popcorn and, and stuff like that because you're too busy looking at guys run around the bases. You know, a guy hits the ball out the ballpark. What do you do? Oh, you go back to eating. The guy is on first and second and somebody steals. You're sitting there anticipating a play. You know, the most exciting play in baseball is the triple. You know, because somebody's running. And is he going to make it? Is he not? You know, so or the play at the plate from the guy scoring from first. Those are the only two, you know, that people pay attention to. And we need to bring that back, uh, being more aggressive on the base pads and things like that. Well, for all your home runs, all the catches you made, everything you did, one of the most memorable images of your career, 95 playoffs scoring in that playoff game, sliding into home, celebrating. That's what you're talking about, right? That's the action you want. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what brings people to the ballpark. You know, if you look at teams that had speed in the, you know, the 80s and, and early 90s, those are the teams that everybody watched. Nobody went and watched a, a team that went out and hit home runs, you know, unless you were Oakland. But they still had guys that could steal. You know, they the top of the order with Ricky and, and Dave, you know, and, and uh, uh, Walt Weiss and a bunch of the guys that, you know, made sure that, hey, the, when the, the big guys came up, we had to make sure that uh, we were in scoring position for them. Ken Griffey Jr., I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for the time. Look forward to seeing you in Cooperstown this year. Thank you. If not in Seattle before. Uh, yeah, that might happen too. <laughs> well, it might happen. <laughs> Ken Griffey, thank you very much, Ken. No problem. Thank you.